Welcome listeners to a new episode of The Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. Uh, my name is Stefan Tilkoff, and today my guest is Arthur Ortega. Arthur, I'm very pleased to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for the invite, Stefan. Our topic today is going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm very sure of that because we're, we, will, we will be talking about REST versus GraphQL. And um, if, you, if you've ever heard me speak about REST, then you know that I'm a big fan of this. So in the same spirit as with the episode with Marcus Felter, uh, this is going to be one of the controversial ones. And I, I actually like them a lot because they give me a chance to learn a lot. And Arthur liked the one with Marcus, so that's why he volunteered and tried to pick it topic that he was sure would annoy me. Is that a fair summary, Arthur? Yeah, that's a very fair uh, a summary. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so please do start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, my name is Arthur Tega. I live in London since 2007. I'm a software architect. At the moment, I'm working for a digital health startup and I'm heading off there, the platform architecture. Okay. And one of the topics you're dealing with, with right now is GraphQL. Mm -hmm. And you said that what we should start with is a REST intro. And then weirdly enough, you asked me to do it. So this is, this is a little strange for our format. So I, I will be doing stuff first. So I will be doing a brief REST intro. And then uh, we will continue by the GraphQL Criticism, or maybe by a GraphQL, brief GraphQL, GraphQL intro first, and then address some of the criticism that GraphQL folks have of the rest of that paradigm. Okay, so I will try to be very brief, and that is really hard for me. Um, so um, probably by now everybody has heard something about REST and has some idea what that is. So I will try to, to summarize this very briefly. A REST stands for a representational state transfer, not that that matters in any way, and it's the title of a uh, of a PhD thesis written um, 20 years ago by Roy Fielding, um, who is one of the people who was very influential in standardizing the web, mostly the HTTP uh, protocol, but also uh, quite a few other standards, RFCs around, around core web architecture protocols and formats. And the REST architectural style is called an architectural style because it is sort of a little bit of, scientific approach to classify a certain kind of system, namely the web. So what REST tries to do is it tries to summarize a few key decisions in the design of the architecture of the web, and then uh, explain what kinds of benefits you might derive if you apply those, or those decisions, if you stick to those restrictions. And then um, it gives that thing a name. So it starts by Know, talking about a bit about different styles that you might want to use, something like whatever pipes and filters or client server, and it derives this particular style that makes up the web. So REST is not, as many think, a web API specification or a style to you know compete with SOAP and Whistle web services. It essentially is the architecture or the architectural style underlying the architecture of the web. And with that out of the way, the core idea here is that there are things that have an identification on the web. That's a URI or URL, if you prefer. So there are identifiable things. You interact with those things. And um, the way you interact with those things is by means of hypermedia. So hypermedia, as in hypermedia uh, uh, H in HTTP, um, or hypertext in that case, the, uh, the hypermedia idea is essentially that whatever you do is based on what you got from your communication partner before. So if you consider a web application, standard classical web application, what happens is you retrieve something from, from some URI, rep a representation of that, that resource identified by that URI. And that might include uh, a few links to other things. And if you follow a link, you'll retrieve another representation. And then that might include maybe a form, and then you add some input into one of those form forms, and then you submit the form and get back a new representation, and so on and so on. So you navigate through the, the state of your system by following links and using other hypermedia affordances. And that core idea is the same whether you're using a browser as a human being or whether you're writing an API client that does that by you know, using the same mechanisms automatically. 
And that in turn gives you some benefits. That's the core idea. If you do that, you get a very, very decoupled system or a very loosely coupled system. Um, and that is evidenced by the fact that we use it every day to navigate sites, jump from Twitter to some other site, go to Facebook and interact with lots of different applications written by different people all over the world. So it scales pretty well and it fulfills that promise of being decoupled. And that is my attempt at a brief summary of what REST <laughs> is about. That is sounds that really good. Brief yeah, enough? It's yeah, it's really good. And it gives me a good segue to GraphQL. Oh, perfect. Because, so please go ahead and explain what GraphQL is then. Okay, GraphQL was defined a few years ago, probably five years ago by Facebook as a blueprint, later on evolved and implemented by several other um, teams and, and different languages and so on. I think the most famous now is at the moment Apollo, but the, GraphQL itself basically exists now as a standard. And the idea is there to look at REST and to say, okay, is it a, is there a better way of navigating one entity to the other, like we described at the moment, and following hypermedia references? And at the beginning, people were using it a little bit like a smart proxy, because um, in the end, people wanted to have not just one REST endpoint, they were usually interested into the data sitting behind the hypermedia references. And usually they were looking into optimizing the data fetching when you are using the API. So they didn't want to overfetch the data, fields that they are not interested in, and they didn't want to issue additional HTTP requests to fetch additional data that were sitting behind the hypermedia references. And this Standard comes with a strongly typed schema definition, very data-centric, and takes this navigation from REST to the next level by specifying a data model and specifying the references to other objects or to itself so that you would be able to explore the schema and navigate the schema, but the interest, interesting part with the navigation is that you are navigating by cherry-picking nested data. And let's mm -hmm. see the, the biggest difference to, to REST. So more data-centric, um, a clear schema, which in REST probably you would defer to Swagger or other tools to define, or JSON schema to define your REST, but it's not as standardized. GraphQL standardizes that. It is a very, very strongly typed way of specifying your data and the references between them, and it optimizes the query of the data. Mm -hmm. That's in okay. essence basically GraphQL. Okay, so maybe we can try to sort of um, um, separate some some issues here, right? One is the is the is the criticism that I often read when I see people introducing GraphQL. You, you, you actually didn't do that very much, right? Which I sort of suspected that you wouldn't be doing that. But the many people who introduce GraphQL use the first two pages of their article to bash REST. Um, so there is this this implied criticism that something is is wrong with REST and bad about REST, and and we can address that as one topic. Then mm -hmm. there's another thing, which is simply a description about or, or of what GraphQL actually is. And I think mm -hmm. we should make a clear separation there, because while it's fun to disagree about, you know, the criticism of REST or not, mm -hmm. it's also interesting to simply know what GraphQL is, independent of whether you think the, think the criticism of REST is justified or not. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we can separate the two. And let's, so let's spend a bit on the fun part before we dive into the yes. actual technical description. And then maybe later on, we can re revisit the... Um, the criticism mm -hmm. again in a sort of a more informed way. Let, so, let's talk about the pain point that you would have yes. with REST. Okay. Yes, please. So w one I, I touched slightly in the definition was overfetching. So what do you do if you have a mobile device, um, low bandwidth, and you want to interact with REST? Um, the provider of the REST API usually doesn't have only one customer or one use case and needs to find the common nominator or the superset of the fields that someone needs. 
And this means that you have to provide basically the full data to the client or create bespoke um, BFF backend for four frontend endpoints for particular customers. It's I disagree with that assessment. Rest. So that okay. is, you know, that is the starting. That's one of the one of the things that drives me crazy about this discussion. Okay. Then. Um, and that is that I think many people who criticize REST are not really criticizing REST. What they're criticizing are bad HTTP APIs. And I have no problem accepting that GraphQL is a vast improvement over bad HTTP APIs. I just am reluctant to call them REST APIs because that's not what they are, right? I think many people have, well, let me, let me try this from a, from a historical mm -hmm. perspective. When this yes. thing started out, um, initially, people had zero respect for HTTP at all. It was, first of all, they decided not to use it at all. And then they decided, okay, this thing seems to be taking off and people seem to want to use it, so let's use it in some way. And then things like SOAP got invented, which essentially tunneled everything through through HTTP post, or mm -hmm. these horrible HTTP query APIs got invented that even worse, tunneled everything through HTTP GET. And that was sort of, that was not only no respect for HTTP, that was basically disrespect of HTTP. It was mm -hmm. like actively ignoring everything about the thing. And we've moved quite a bit from, from, from that stage to a, to a stage where um, GraphQL people, as well as REST people, as well as whatever you call the HTTP, JSON people, whatever, they all acknowledge that HTTP has some benefits. And some of those benefits include um, caching and the meaning of the HTTP verbs and headers and stuff. So most people have moved to at least something like a CRUD HTTP API, right? Where mm -hmm. get, put, post, delete are used roughly mapped to the, to the create, read, update, delete verbs known in database programming. And they've created um, APIs that do a little better in respecting HTTP, but they're not they're not REST APIs because a REST API is not something that you use to write an application. A, a REST API, if it's supposed to be a REST API, actually is an application. It's supposed to sit on a different layer, right? If you have an mm -hmm. HTTP API, if you expose an HTTP API to the outside world, that in a visualization of layers is too low, right? Too close to the, to the database then you will be required to write a client that has a lot of business logic. And mm -hmm. HTTP and, or let me rephrase, REST APIs are really, are really not about that. A REST API is supposed to encapsulate a lot of business logic. So say you have an approval process or something, then a REST API is excellent to expose that approval process to the outside world. Mm -hmm. It's not a good candidate to expose a low-level API that somebody else can use to write an approval process. That's, you know, it just sits at the wrong layer. Mm -hmm. So if you compare GraphQL to a low-level HTTP API, what I would consider a bad REST API, then that criticism holds. But if you write, that's essentially the, the short version of what I just ranted about. If you, if, you, if you write a good REST API, then it'll have the information needed to go to the next step, irregard, or regardless of what kind of client it is that you're, that you're uh, using there. Because essentially, they'll all have the same requirements in terms of the business logic on the server side they want to reuse. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But I think GraphQL goes a little bit, well, it, it splits the, the, the work up a little bit. So you don't have only queries in, in GraphQL have mutations as well. Mm -hmm. We'll and, get to that. And th so you, you, you would basically, the, the use case that you'd explained about an approval process would go through the mutation. And there's a standardization there as well on if you provide the ID back, you can provide the client with all the fields that have been updated through your approval process. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have like, um, a strongly consistent way of returning the data that has changed on that object that you basically change the status and you would get basically back on the client. So it's it's a slightly different, it wouldn't be the query path. The query path would more about like navigating the data and querying the data itself. Okay, I think we'll get into more detail about that. And that is a valid thing, right? Because what you're saying now is that 
you could essentially achieve the same you could you could uh, sort of put the api at the same level at the same layer with both right mm -hmm. but you would have just the you would have the benefit of standardization with the graphql right. approach we can we can discuss that but that is mm -hmm. a different one than saying um the rest api will be too low level and too chatty because that always drives me crazy that is sort of the standard <laughs> argument that i always read for people trying to sell me graphql if they they want to sell me graphql by telling me i should I, rest sucks and then i look at the way they use rest and and i agree it sucks because it's not rest what you're doing there right if you yeah. if you use it at a different level you wouldn't have the problem that that is that's maybe just a way of selling it right maybe it works yeah. so that's perfectly fine if it works for selling graphql to people who are who have bad experience with a restful approach okay mm -hmm. doesn't work for me because i don't have that bad experience right. with those with those things and maybe it sort of alienates me for no good reason it makes me it makes me criticize graphql simply because of the way it's sold to me as opposed to mm -hmm. uh, its technical benefits Let, let's take the advantage you were explaining about having media references Mm -hmm. So in, in my case, for example, uh, if you, I'm working in digital health, so there would be, for example, an appointment. The appointment would have a hypermedia reference to the patient, a hypermedia reference to the location where the appointment is, a hypermedia reference for the practitioner who is um, taking care of the consultation. And, and if you go for rest, you would basically fetch the appointment or and, and see what is when is the appointment, when does it start, when does it end. And in the moment, you would like to know who is taking part at the appointment, where is the appointment, you would need to follow these hypermedia references. So the example that you gave is like the web. You would follow them if you are interested into them. I, I, again, sorry for interrupting you. I'm not sure I agree, right? Which is okay. say, or no, please finish first, then I'll see whether okay. I disagree. Or so the, the idea would be now to say, okay, we are defining these entities like an appointment, a patient, a practitioner, a location as their own separate resources or entities. And we, we live with these references. And what you would basically do when you are navigating it with GraphQL, you would get the definition for your appointment, but while following the hypermedia reference, you would get as well the definition for the nested entities, like a patient, practitioner, and a location, and you would be able to cherry pick some of the values that you need there. And the interesting part is then you get all the fields that you need in one way back without looking at the hypermedia reference themselves. Mm -hmm. They are basically transparent to the moment. So in the moment you go to the appointment, say, give me the appointment with the patient name, consultant name, and the location name, you would get these three additional values to your appointment object back without the need of looking at the hypermedia reference themselves. They are just like pointers in C. You're not right. interested in the pointer, you're just interested into the values they are referencing at. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a, bit so a here's... big difference, I think, to rest, I think. Okay. So... Uh... I, I mostly disagree with that assessment as well. So okay. one of the things is that you sort of implicitly introduced a, you could call it a normalization step there, right? You said, well, in, in mm -hmm. a rest world, you would have the appointment and then you would point to, you know, the doctor or the patient and the med, whatever, the medication, I don't know, sort mm -hmm. of implying that if I were to design this system in a restful way, I would be decomposing things on this fine gra fine grain level. Mm -hmm. But of course, I have absolutely no incentive to do that if that's not what the use cases ask for. If you go to mm -hmm. a website, let's say you you buy stuff at amazon.com or amazon.co.uk, mm -hmm. then you're not presented with this kind of interface. You're not presented with something that only has some information about one entity. And every time you want something, some additional information, you have to navigate to another one and you don't have to follow a hundred links to assemble the information you need to make a purchasing decision that's not the way a website works the way a website works is it presents you with everything you need to take the next step whatever that is maybe click a link mm -hmm. or submit some data and yeah. a good rest api would follow the same principle it would give you whatever you need now and it would possibly give you ways to drill down to more detail but only if you need it so Let's say your your use case is 
in your domain, I don't know, making an appointment, maybe canceling an appointment, right? To cancel mm -hmm. an appointment, I need to know whether I found the right appointment. And maybe I need an option to not cancel, but reschedule it. Or maybe I can ask whether it's still possible to cancel it, or I can get some information about what the cost would be if I canceled it now, then mm -hmm. that information would all be presented to me, along with the with the next possible steps that I can do, like cancel it with a reason or uh, yeah. uh, cancel the cancellation, whatever it is. So in a, in, a good, in a good restful system, whether it's an API or a website or a web app, you would be presented with the information, with the contextual information that you need to make the next decision of how to move the thing forward. Now, what I do grant you is that there is a difference in who gets to decide what that is, right? Because yes, in the exactly. in the RESTful model, it's the server that decides that. It's it's that, that's essentially to me that is what the client server system in yeah. that case means, right? The server decides that and presents those options, which has both benefits and downsides. So one of the benefits is that it's consistent across all clients. I now have the same. You know, the same information, this is the kind of information that I mm -hmm. need to present my users, my clients, my consumers, if they need to take that next step. And maybe I have variants of that. I have like, you know, these three or four paths through the, through the stages in my system mm -hmm. with maybe different stuff, but it's sort of predefined on the server side. It's sort of, it I determine on the server side with, 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 a, with a benefit that it's consistent and the downside that I can't deviate from that. If you as a client are just interested in just one particular aspect, you might get too much data or too little data. And with GraphQL, you can influence that. It, it has an influence as well on the architecture on the server side. Because the example now with the appointments, and you would say, I actually, if I do an appointment, I would provide you the data of the patient name, practitioner name, or location name, because I know you need it. But yes. practically, this data in a big enterprise would sit in different places. And there are probably even other REST APIs maintained by other teams. So where it ends up is that on the server side, the responsibles for the appointment need to understand how the patient data works, how the practitioner data works, how the location data works, need to deal with probably sub requests into them or subscribing to events to get the data into their domain. But in the end, they need to understand the patient, the practitioner, and the location. There are three foreign resources to the appointment. They need to understand them to provide you with information. GraphQL mm -hmm. uh, gives, gives you, let's say, um, a different architecture for that because um, you leave the fetching of the nested data to the GraphQL service itself by just referencing it. That means the appointment team doesn't need to know how a patient works, doesn't need to know the data model, and doesn't need to fetch the data. So they don't have to deal with additional sub-requests, what to do when the data is missing, how the retries, or even subscribing to data to basically put it into the data model. But that sounds a bit like, you know, if I were to write an application uh, that has a user interface, mm -hmm. uh, it sounds a bit like, uh, I would say, uh, um, well, I don't have to understand this data and that data and that data because I simply just give my user a SQL query panel where they can enter a SQL query and they get the raw data. I mean, of course <laughs> that's true. They got the raw data, but I haven't, I haven't really solved a problem. I've just delegated the problem to somebody else, namely the user or in your case, the client, because now the client will need to ha understand the data, right? As opposed to the Correct. server. Somebody has to understand it to make sense of it. But they still have to understand it, even if you provide them the API. So the interesting part with GraphQL is this strongly typed data schema or the GraphQL schema. That means you can mm -hmm. inspect the schema and you get the full schema in one go. So the whole API that you're getting basically becomes one domain. It's not like an API gateway where you would have several REST APIs on it and, and you need to figure out how the one works and the other. If you just would follow hypermedia reference and you leave it to the client, on that case, you get the full data model for an appointment and that would include the data model for the patient and so on. So mm -hmm. you still have to understand it regardless if you make it part of the appointment on the REST API or you basically get a graphical schema.
I, I agree to a certain degree. So I don't, I, I, I will not, you know, argue that schemas don't have value. Uh, mm -hmm. I think they have downsides as well, but they do definitely mm -hmm. have value. So may maybe now is a good point to to really go into more detail about yes. the GraphQL aspects. So mm -hmm. why don't you why don't you start us off with uh, with a little more of a technical introduction to GraphQL? How does it work? What features yes. does it provide? Okay, so central to GraphQL is our GraphQL schema. This is a standardized way of defining your data model, and additional to the data model itself where you define them through different entities you you have a standardization as well about um pagination and some of basically our best practices as well so for facebook that basically is specified about how you basically filter on this pagination and um how you name basically things so you have a, a particular kind of style guide for these data schemas how you define them and then an additional part is you can annotate the schema. They're called directives. Or you can even define custom directives um, where you define for each of the fields basically some specifics about that field. And it could be, for example, um, visibility for a particular role or you, you want to um, apply basically um, addition, additional polymorphic options for that field and um the 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 uh the schema itself basically then basically is basically a combination of different entities that are referencing each other um the other part and that goes a little bit beyond of the um just using graphql just basically to reference the schema would be as well the how to navigate a graph. And that would mean, for example, if you think about pagination, it would be the reverse search or the adjacency list. So in the case, mm -hmm. for example, I gave an appointment reference a patient. The patient itself doesn't reference the appointment, but the reverse search would be a list of appointments. So you would basically define, for example, um, as part of the patient definition, the list of appointments that would be all the appointments that are belonging to that patient and then you would basically act on that list of appointments so you get basically a sense of a graph by navigating in one direction and having the pagination on the adjacency list mm -hmm. and this gives you basically a different semantics about navigating the data itself then that and under the hood basically um, to each entity, uh, each field itself needs its own resolver. These resolvers can be bespoke code. Um, under the hood, these resolvers could even end up to go to several backend services. Even basically, you are fetching a patient, but the patient data would come from different services. Because you are resolving it field by field, you would basically be able to resolve it even from different resources. The mm -hmm. other part is you can annotate as well these fields with directives to specify which fields are being deprecated. And then the other part is because GraphQL itself doesn't allow to say, give me the full piece of data and all the fields, but you always have to specify implicitly, um, no, ex explicitly the field that you are interested in it gives the server side the option to know which fields are actually being used by the client. And you know if you are breaking something, if you are deprecating a field or adding a new field, which allows a complete new evolution of the API without versioning, but gradually moving fields along. Mm -hmm. So let me let me see whether I've understood this correctly. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, what you've just described is I have a data modeling language mm -hmm. that allows me to specify the entities that make up my context or whatever it is mm -hmm. um, with all their fields and types and the relation mm -hmm. between those entities and some meta information about mm -hmm. all the fields and entities like deprecation or maybe some information about validation rules or whatever yeah. it yeah. is. Um, that would be something that is sort of the uh, 
well, I don't know what the GraphQL people call it, the contract, right? But it's sort of the, yeah, it's sort schema. of the, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay. So it's, it's the schema. It's the, in, in the whistle times, we would have called it, you know, the, uh, a contract first design doesn't really matter. So mm -hmm. you yeah. basically design these, uh, these, um, this, this schema so that you have a com so that you have an agreement between the users of that schema and the providers of that schema. Mm -hmm. So from the user side, if I am a GraphQL user, I can, I can retrieve that schema from, from some place, can look at it, and then I can mm -hmm. start to uh, actually do something with the other side without knowing what's behind that particular schema, Correct. how it's fulfilled, how it's provided. Okay. Correct. So from the client side of things, um, what are the things that I can do with that, with that schema? Okay. So the interesting part with this schema, because you can basically inspect it, schema that is standardized, that means um, you, you, you can use interactive GraphQL clients. There are several of them. Graphical mm -hmm. is one of them. Playground. There are several of them which um, explore the schema of an API. They get the documentation that is annotated to it. If they know basically the types that you can specify, and that means you can start to explore the API. Um, very often, um, providers of an API would even provide predefined queries for that API. But in the end, you would have an interactive tool with auto-completion where you could start to query the data in an interactive way. A bit like, so, a, a, bit like a SQL query builder for... Well, like a workbench, yes, right? exactly that. But you are working with the live okay. data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it's interesting because um, you are not. You, you have it's, otherwise you would go from a REST definition, and you need to uh, read the documentation or read the Swagger documentation to understand your API. This one is more like an explorative way to doing that and making use that JSON is as readable as it is. Let me just make a brief note of the fact that I don't consider Swagger to be restful or, or a good okay, example <laughs> of something, but okay. Okay. Understood. So I use, I use, for example, an interactive client. I don't have to do that, but I can do that to mm -hmm. explore, to explore the schema and figure out what it is that I want and how to get that and maybe fiddle around with some actions. So you mentioned that mm -hmm. it's not just queries. I think everybody can understand or yes, sort exactly. of guess that there are queries, but there are also other options. Yes. Right? There are two additional ways of interacting with GraphQL. What the, the next one is mutation, um, which includes create, update, and delete. Um, so um, this is probably the, the um, most equivalent that you were explaining. Um, the interesting part with mutations and a lot of the clients, the clients for this standard basically very often use local caches, local copies of the data. And that means that you can be, um, when you are mutating a data, you can basically return for the ID that has changed all the affected data back so that the client itself can update the local copy. Mm -hmm. Often, usually what happens is otherwise you, you would update a piece of data, you would get some additional information back how to continue with your journey. And there could be another query, for example, and this is slightly different and sorry it's, I think it's more aligned there. of yeah it's it's it basically it's it's very aligned with cqrs probably mm -hmm. where you you do the command layer with the nice advantage that um you would get the effect uh, the effect of your command basically immediately back if you want to mm -hmm. come back and as well but the recommended would be that you come back with what was the effect of your command and then the query would be a separate password. It's very close to to mm -hmm. what you basically would take with the request. Then the the other part is subscriptions. There are different implementation of them. Some of them are webhooks. Um, so you are mutating something. Uh, it has an impact, and then you you will you, you want to subscribe to some of the data that you have locally if they have been updated. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of them are defined publicly, can implement, be implemented with webhooks or with WebSockets. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the implementations use WebSockets to um, keep your data locally up to date. Mm -hmm. So 
for the data mm -hmm. basically that you have really impacted. Okay, so um, uh, the typical model here would be a uh, a local application, let's say a native application mm -hmm. running on some device, or maybe a single page application, whatever it is something that has mm -hmm. logic, has its own local copy of the data relevant to its to its scope, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe the users it's interested in or the transactions yeah, it's interested in. Mm -hmm. It would send commands to the to the GraphQL site to get stuff mutated. It would get mm -hmm. back the results uh, if they're if they're relevant for some for something they're subscribed to because they're interested in that, and then they mm -hmm. would update their local copy. So it's essentially, and that is, I think, a perfectly valid and absolutely a reasonable discussion because we're, what we're describing here is a certain architecture, and mm -hmm. that's the architecture that GraphQL is built for. Right, mm -hmm. my only. My only argument that I'm probably going to come back to multiple times uh, during the rest of our talk is that yeah. um, this is specifically not something you would ever aim for with a RESTful system, right? So the the, the whole comparison no, is maybe it's maybe is maybe broken. But let's let's continue because we're because I'm just mm -hmm. learning so much at the moment. I'm having mm -hmm. fun doing that. Okay, so I understood <laughs> the client side. Yep. I have standard ways of interacting with that thing. I don't have to. I would just assume I don't have to worry about anything implementation wise on the server side because i have mm -hmm. standardized interaction with everything that exposes this kind of graphql yeah. schema so in terms of the uh, the standardization is there just is there one graphql standard in one particular version that's current or what is the status there um yeah there's, an, uh, there's a working group for on, on graphql that are working on the standard um usually the 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 fun fundamental part is no breaking changes. Um, that is as well part as well how you basically evolve as well your schema yourself, mm -hmm. and and it's a lot of tooling around that additionally to that. So you would have toolings around um, what are the queries you are getting in. Uh, can you double check um, if the changes you are having basically have an impact on other clients? It could be other services as well that you are using, and and basically most of the time is evolving an API without breaking change. And the same is for the schema as well. Um, there are more and more weekly directives being added that like, over the time that are evolving, like date and time, this kind of things. But at the same time, you can extend it yourself with a custom directives and so on. Mm -hmm. And But otherwise, it's basically, uh, it's, it's clearly defined and standardized for that. Okay. So I'm just asking this because of, for other standards, you mm -hmm. sometimes have have some people call something a standard, but in actual real life, it's not that interoperable at all. That is not the case in this. In this, uh, no, you can basically space. use you can basically use um, a, a Java client and 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 mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, a Python server for GraphQL or a TypeScript client and and a Scala mm -hmm. server. It it wouldn't make any difference at all. Okay, perfectly fine. Okay, mm -hmm. so I think we've covered most of the client side view. Right? Mm -hmm. Or is there something missing? Yes, I think um, I think we have probably put to come back as well why it became so popular because mm -hmm. you you mentioned that the badly implemented REST APIs. So mm -hmm. um, GraphQL became mostly popular by the front end developers and mobile developers. It was basically tired of dealing with probably bad designed REST APIs, mm -hmm. and and on the same time, especially on mobile where they wanted to make sure that the number of connections to the server are optimized. That was in the time five years ago, that was but the HTTP2 wasn't a thing yet on the CDN level. So you speak, still speak about HTTP 1.1. Um, if it's HTTPS, each connection would need to basically do the handshake and the SSL mm -hmm. certificates and so on. So each connection on a mobile phone was having a lot of impact on how fast you can interact with the REST APIs on the server side. And they were trying to optimize the uh, connections to have one connection and leaving it to the server side to do all the steps necessary to deal with REST APIs. Mm -hmm. And that's usually where GraphQL came in. So usually you had front-end developers, mobile developers, they were saying, um, we don't want to deal with, you would say, bad implemented REST APIs, but that's basically how the reality looks like. And they were saying, let's simplify the interaction with the REST APIs. Let's simplify the interaction 
with hypermedia references and mm -hmm. let's move the complexity to the server side so that on the client side, I can have a very lightweight UI and dealing with just with um, local state and uh, local copies, but minimizing the the business logic on the client. That makes perfect sense. That's where it starts. Yeah, that's ma that makes perfect sense, and I don't even disagree. Right? If we can, if we can settle on the fact that these, you know, they have that we're having these badly designed REST APIs for whatever reason. Maybe it's because mm -hmm. REST is so hard. Maybe it's because people did a bad job. Who, who, no, who cares? Mm -hmm. We had that situation. And it's definitely not something that I would, uh, you know, deny that this exists. There, there are tons of really, really bad REST APIs. It's just the question of what strategy do we use to fix that situation? And of course, I would argue that the best way would be to fix the bad APIs and make them good APIs, thereby sort of making reducing the need for something like GraphQL. But I mean, maybe that's just a wish. Yeah, maybe that's just wishful thinking. And then uh, the other option, of course, is to invent something that can make more sense of that or make it easier for people who design bad REST APIs to design, well, maybe not good REST APIs, but at least good GraphQL schemas. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a, that's a good strategy. And mm -hmm. if you assume that that is the case, then the rest of what we just discussed makes perfect sense. So I have no disagreement mm -hmm. on the technical side of things. We can have a debate about what the better architecture is for what scenario, but let's move that to the end. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, uh, I, I now have a pretty good picture of what GraphQL does on the client side. So maybe let's move to the server, to mm -hmm. the implementation side yeah. of things. I have this thing and now I'm responsible for implementing that yeah. schema, that contract. How do I do that? Okay, so usually people define the schema and then they start to implement the resolvers for each of the fields. So, so please okay. explain How, that again to me. I do have, I need a, I do need a resolver for each of the fields that puzzles yes, me. Yes, usually it's so usually basically if it's if it's, it's basically a one to one mapping is not a big deal. Very often, and we are speaking about the front end trying to simplify some of the work that they have to do. That means usually they implement resolvers for the fields you're exposing, and these resolvers could fetch the data from a database, from a REST API, from any kind of different sources, but they are unifying and making the data consistent, even if they are usually sitting in different endpoints on the server side. And usually you are implementing, in, in that case, resolvers for each of the fields. And you are very, very, very local to each of the fields when you're implementing GraphQL. And it's a, that's a big difference to probably classical um, REST APIs where you don't go, you're not as specific on a field level. Hmm. And, and, and at the beginning, and that's the interesting part, is at the beginning they're using it a little bit like, um, like only like a smart proxy, where they can say, can you pick these fields from these two different endpoints and make it consistent to to me and make sure that the data type is the right one and mm -hmm. and deal with the case if some of the apis don't respond at all so for example how to deal with partial responses if some of the rest APIs are not there um how to uh store the data which of the fields you would basically um make nullable to say basically that there's no data coming back and, mm -hmm. and you can still still deal with partial updates, even if the server site is not completely available. And it all goes down to the level of writing this resolver. It's the first first encounter. Usually you see basically GraphQL just as a smart proxy and not an, as a graph data modeling tool on its own right. That's mm -hmm. usually how it starts. Okay. So... Just for me to get things clear in my head, mm -hmm. um, what I what I can imagine in a very straightforward way would be to have a moderately complex GraphQL schema and then just map that to some one existing database, right? I have this whatever um, SQL data okay. store or whatever, or maybe no no SQL data store, and then I get the uh, get the an incoming or I need to re implement the resolvers for the fields and entities and relationships, and I simply map them to the appropriate queries to my data store. Mm, yes, um, how you can you can even see it even beyond of that. So, um, you can even 
So, so let's say we, if you have APIs that are specialized for particular things, so you have one API that's um, optimized for doing fuzzy searching on some of the data. Mm -hmm. And and that API just comes back with the hypermedia references, for the, basically in the end, the, the IDs for the resource themselves. Mm -hmm. And and um, GraphQL basically by basically combining these resolvers for the IDs and then using then the resolvers for the objects that are sitting behind the IDs, um, the client would need to look at the hypermedia reference themselves. They would just fetch the fields as of the search result as coming back. And mm -hmm. this way, basically, they can really simplify the approach that they're using. That usually is more complicated when um, backend engineers are providing them okay. with different APIs. Okay. So, so that would have been my next question, but it's perfectly fine. You've answered it. How would I go about aggregating data from different sources? Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's a good example. I get a search index somewhere. I get to perform a search, get some result. There are some IDs. I pick some data from somewhere else, combine them so that they conform to the schema, return that to, to the client. I, right. I completely understand that. You get probably have I, as, as well a clear contract that yeah. um, of the data. So the other, otherwise, you basically, so in the moment you're defining the, the, the types for your, for your, for your schema, and you can do unions of them and, and so on. But in the end, you are, you have specifying a, a contract and this allows you basically to do contract, um, basically to validation during the query time. Mm -hmm. Which is mm -hmm. quite a difference to usually, um, because in, in in this moment we're speaking still at the moment when front end developers are maintaining that, so they they can ensure the thing that they are expecting from the REST APIs is not diverging over time. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, mm -hmm. understood. If I were to implement a you know REST API in my terminology, I would basically do the same thing. It would just be. Um, uh, maybe in a, uh, maybe an implementation to some ad hoc specification or some ad hoc format would basically be the same thing. I would implement the same backend interactions, right, with mm -hmm. existing systems and then return an aggregated result as well. But I would have to come up with a data format and a way to represent that stuff because I don't have the standardization provided by the GraphQL schema. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the same layer in that regard. How yeah. about if I if I have some sort of business logic, is business logic commonly implemented in that GraphQL layer? And if so, how? Um, potentially, yes. Um, so in theory, you can build business logic in each of the results for each field in theory. Um, by experience of the thing that I've seen, usually the logic moves into the mutation and, and the query becomes more basically simplified. So um, simple, simple, similar to what you would expect on TQRS. That's what mm -hmm. I see, even if it would be possible to add more logic into that. But speaking with that is basically the next step. Usually what happens of not just paginating simple data would be to say then, can we model the data in a graph? Can we model the list that we're getting as adjacency lists? And mm -hmm. that that is the big difference after the first step of just using it as a smart proxy. Because then you would say, um, I don't want to just um, have a list of appointments, but you would navigate the graph. You would say, I'm, I, I, I want to go to this patient. I want from this patient all the appointments. And that would be an adjacency list. That would be a list of all the appointments referencing that patient. And suddenly you are navigating your entities and and the references, and you are navigating the adjacency list of that graph. That's where sounds the graph part comes into it. Right. It sounds as if somebody's just invented hypermedia, which is awesome. I like that. Very positive. <laughs> Very positive development. I'm happy about that. Yeah, but okay. think so, of, also, uh, let's say, of a web page. So in the web page itself, it's a moment you you can only have the links to the other pages, but mm -hmm. you don't, if you have a page, you, you don't get a list of all the pages pointing to you. Mm -hmm. And that's usually where the pagination usually comes in. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and that's, that's, so if you have an if you have, if you have a patient, you would say like, what are the appointment pages pointing to this patient? And that would be slightly different to the classical web, basically functionality that you would think. But is that something that I do on the client or on the server side? On the server side. 
Well, but you, it's the you same would thing, implement right? the I mean, adjacency list. Mm -hmm. Right. You just you just have, you just have a convenient way to get that, right? Because if this, mm -hmm. you have the schema, you know about this relationship in this direction. You know that a patient has an appointments. Mm -hmm. So your 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 schema allows your environment, your infrastructure, to give you a very right. easy way to get to that thing. But in the end, what you return to the client is the same thing that I would return to the client. Correct. And, and, and so, in a in a in a defined or best practice way. So. How do we do yes. yes. Mm -hmm. I buy the standardization argument um, mm -hmm. with all the benefits and downsides that come with that kind of thing. But it's perfectly yes. fine. So um, okay. So I think I also got a new epiphany when you mentioned the the CQRS thing again. So maybe for our listeners who don't know the acronym, CQRS is uh, Command Query Responsibility Segregation, essentially separating the the writing, the transactioning, the transactional part, the the changing part from the reading part. The reading part would then be very optimized, well, for reading, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that you just explained to me. So I'm rephrasing it in my words, and you can mm -hmm. tell me whether I understood yeah, it correct. correctly. Mm -hmm. What you said was that essentially the way you end up with uh, the schemas you end up with in a good GraphQL design basically mm -hmm. allow or design the schema in such a way that it's good for reading, which makes perfect sense. Correct. So it's sort of it's optimized for consumption for just read purposes. And then the, mm -hmm. the writing part is sort of a different, it's a different channel into the same thing. Correct. And then mm -hmm. that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay, so it essentially standardizes that as well. Very yeah. good. Um, what else? Well, the business logic question, I think we were, were addressing yes. that, right? You mentioned that the business logic, and that makes perfect sense then, does not belong in the reading part, right? Because you would sort of normalize or or denormalize things when you when you handle the the mutation things mm -hmm. right you mutate you handle the mutation so that the reading then becomes easy and fast or based on the Correct. spread out data so how do you how do you implement the mutating actions on the server side um most of the time you're using apis that are available already in the in the uh, company mm -hmm. um you you can op they, they are obviously now already and, and that's the part where you usually would write uh, code on the mutations and the resolvers for the fields where you would do put the logic into the mutation. Um, I just want to clarify, you could write business logic in the resolvers of the queries, but it's less common. So the um, resolvers of the queries, that does that... Are they you... could have code as well in business logic well, in yes. theory. But, but if you use the term common. query here, are you just talking about the reading queries or do you... Do you call the mutation actions queries as well? Uh, just oh, no, no, no. We have only mut no, no. Qu queries is is one thing. Mutation Reading is the yeah, exactly. Okay. So the so, the um, command that is the mutation, and the, the uh, query part is the okay. Q, the query part of the CQRS. That makes sense. So I'm not sure you answered my question. I understood that mm -hmm. there is not supposed to be business logic in the queries, mm -hmm. in the reading part. That was the CQRS discussion we yeah. just had, right? Mm -hmm. But what about the my assumption is if I have some sort of GraphQL server or mm -hmm. framework, or whatever they're called, then I have sort of have maybe some kind of hook that I can use to implement some logic that runs when yeah. a mutation happens, right? Yeah, the resolvers and the, and the mutation side. Mm -hmm. So on the mutation side, they're also called resolvers. Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't, I wasn't sure about, yeah, wasn't yeah, yeah, sure yeah. of that. Okay, yeah. so what you're saying is, I in theory, I could write business logic in the resolvers. In practice, I would essentially most of the time end up delegating to some other system. Yes, very often okay. you go through APIs that exist. Mm -hmm. A lot of the APIs are already having in sometimes event-driven architecture already in place, which fits nicely to that. So, if you if if the API if the APIs already have that, on, on the same time you have situations where mutations and query goes still to the same database. Okay, so you let me play my well. like, mm -hmm. okay. Let me play my curmudgeon role here again. Mm -hmm. It's like, it sounds like a super sophisticated, uh, fancy solution to a problem that I'd rather not have. Because Interesting. We, <laughs> right? Because what we have is we have backend APIs that aren't great. And then we put this complicated server-side infrastructure on top of that to turn them into something that is okay so that we have a client that can consume that stuff that is now standardized and okay to build something on the client side mm -hmm. that I would the very beginning have built on the server side in Correct. the first application layer that doesn't Correct. suck. So yes. that is a sort of, that's sort of an architectural it's, it's, thing. It's, so it's, it's exactly what happens on the on, on, on the corporation. So yeah. you okay. have this makes situation where, where the front end really sense. says, 
actually backend, you are not doing what the customer actually wants. I, I it's not yeah. the exact thing that I need. We mm -hmm. built a, let's say, a highly sophisticated GraphQL service in front of it. And, Very and cool. we're doing that at, at that point. And in the meantime, the backend continues to do their work and just ignoring what the front end does because they will build your, build your GraphQL and they're adding more and more endpoints to their API gateway or to their mesh and they're adding more and more microservices. So we are basically probably on the, what are the optimized numbers of microservices? So you're probably on the 400 something. And then the point of the situation where the front end says, actually, we can't cope anymore to write resolves up to the field level for probably 400 endpoints <laughs> and we have to maintain all in one big schema it gets out of hand and they're okay. basically throwing the toys out of the brand that's usually what happens in that situation <sighs> big sigh but okay <laughs> let's, let's move on um, yeah. One thing that I was wondering about, and I think you mentioned it in passing before, uh, obviously this will at some point in time become um, unmanageable on the GraphQL server side as well, right? So how yes. can you turn that into something more manageable when you need to scale it to a bigger scale? Yes. So it, the interesting part is a lot of the front-end developers that got to that point, so it happened to me before at, at The Economist as we were doing that there with microservices, where the front-end was like, it became a, like a monolith. Where the whole, the whole corporation data model is in one schema and all the translation for all the APIs is in one place and it feels like a monolith. And then you have this transition where the front end says, actually, can you that you are building the APIs actually look at what we build and basically follow our, our path and take care of your small bits. And then the backend says, Actually, we are not looking at such a big domain. We are only working smaller teams. We are only taking care of smaller microservices. We are not taking care of the whole thing. Nobody wants to be responsible on the backend. And that was a classical problem that a lot of companies went into with GraphQL. That's why probably a year ago, roughly, um, there was several, it, 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 well, it, at some point, People were coming up as can we stitch GraphQL queries together so that different backend teams can take a part of it? Mm -hmm. but that didn't mm -hmm. really work out. And then Apollo came up with a new standardization it's called Apollo Federation, but it's not specific to Apollo, where um, you specify a very lightweight gateway that inspects the data schemas of different domain gateways that basically are added to the federation and basically looks them up every time basically something's changed in any of the upstream gateways, domain gateways, and looks at the definitions of them, looks at foreign references to the other domain gateways and builds up a federated domain gateway across the company while everyone else just provides a small subset of their domain into the federation. Mm -hmm. That's the basically the next iteration, which you would basically call basically an API gateway on the REST side. This is basically the part where the pain of the front end of dealing with um, a yeah. lot of microservices being available and dealing with it, a common data model that you have across them to split the responsibility up and where you then have the situation where you have a little bit like a shared data model between the front end and the back end, but the back end is then responsible for their entities with the normalization on the data model so that you would reference to the other one. And GraphQL is, itself is more like um a query optimizer. So in the moment you are asking for some data, it basically has the information about the data models coming from the different domain gateways. It knows where the data is sitting, which format it has, and optimizes the queries across the different domains for the queries coming in. And that's at the <sighs> moment the new state of the art. <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> I can hear you fine. Yes. It's, it's, uh, you know, there was a time when I would have been really happy to hear all this 
because I can basically, you know, my, my old mind can basically hear all the consulting revenue coming in. There's so, <laughs> there is so much to, you know, there's so much to talk about and, and teach people. And there's so much to coach people. Oh, it's fantastic. I can see how some people might be really big fans of this approach. Um, it, it's really, you know, it's a bit like, it reminds me a bit of the, of the soap whistle WS Death Star world mm -hmm. that I used to be a part of. So I'm guilty of that as well. I'm not, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm just, I was, I'm, I was just as guilty of this as well. I just, I've stopped believing in that. It's just all this complication, all this, all these layers, all this complexity. I mean, things could be simpler, right? It would be better if they were simpler because they would be more manageable and they would be, and, and you could better understand them and you could better maintain them and you could actually have something that moves that moves faster and, you know, has more value for less of an investment. So it, <sighs> I think the interesting part is but maybe, it's not maybe too that complicated. Battle is lost. Are, I don't know. So let, let's put it this way. <laughs> it's not too complicated. Okay. And, and you, and you can see that because it's, um, it was, GraphQL was initially introduced in a lot of the companies to simplify the work with the REST APIs and having a clear data structure. So, the the approach there is still very data driven and simplification driven for the front end. Um, well, yeah, maybe. And yes, it's, yes, it's, it's 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 very lightweight still. So the federation he tries to get this several domain that we have and tries to normalize it as much as possible. But you are moving complexity in the architecture. So what mm. you would um, have in your REST API where you would call out to other services or you would subscribe to other services to get the data. Um, that that complexity moves into your data schema. You mm -hmm. you end up to define the schema to say, um, I have an appointment, but this appointment needs a patient, a practitioner location, and I leave it to the other three domain gateways to provide us this data and the schemas mm -hmm. for them. And, and it's basically, it's moving responsibility and delegating responsibility away. And it's probably more solving an organizational thing. And at the same time, moving responsibility away from the team. So they don't have to call out and fetch data and understand the data themselves. Mm -hmm. This makes, this all makes perfect sense. So uh, I think it's, it's, there is a, a particular, not even a particular, there are certain use cases where this matches perfectly, right? So I'm not mm -hmm. debating, I'm not, you know, uh, debating whether that is the case or not. It's just more, more, more of a discussion whether you want to be in a situation where you need something like that, and maybe you can't mm -hmm. avoid being in that situation. And if you can't, or if some other circumstances force you to deal with it with that kind of, um, that, that kind of, of scenario, then that seems like a very well thought out attempt, and which is probably evidenced by its popularity. I mean, there are always some good ideas in every approach, right? Otherwise, it would simply disappear into, Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, in, into you know, darkness somewhere, but it, 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 this is definitely a very interesting thing. So I've learned a lot about where a GraphQL might be applicable. Can't say mm -hmm. it has ch fundamentally changed my opinion, but I understand it a lot better. Mm -hmm. And I have some, I have now in my mind, I have a, a certain scenario of use cases where I could imagine GraphQL could be a very good match. Mm -hmm. Are there some additional use cases that you want to mention where GraphQL is a particularly good fit? Mm, I, I think the interesting part there is a little bit as well the discussion about ownership of domains and how they, the domains relate to each other. Because uh, mm -hmm. in the moment, especially if you're going to the part of the federation where you specify what you own and you reference it or you delegate the definition of other values to the others, at that moment, you, you have to figure out who owns which domain and and, and how the relationship are to each other. And this conversation is forced in that moment where in a classical API gateway, people, the only thing they're interested in is that you don't have colliding endpoints on the API gateway. And, and probably the, the, there is probably even less of conversation if you just have a mesh. And I think the, the interesting part is more like, what does it support? And it, it supports a conversation about the data model consistency, where are the boundaries of the domains, how are they relating to each other, and so on, which um, 
in the moment basically everyone in the company is contributing to it basically you have to have a much more conscious discussion about that and it's it's enabling this discussion mm -hmm. it doesn't solve it obviously because okay. you can still make mess it up yeah. so <laughs> Yeah, I will. I will refrain from comparisons to uh, canonical data models and enterprise-wide data. Models. I, I will just men not mention it. Um, just that's my new strategy: <laughs> not mentioning it by mentioning it. So that's yeah, like, it, 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 um, there was that, uh, that's right. So, um, <laughs> Arthur, this was this was extremely interesting. Thanks a lot for all the information. Um, as usual, my last question is: uh, Do you have some resources that you want to point our listeners to? Yes. Um, I think there are several interesting talks. Um. I think Apollo has a few ones about um, how they're being used. Um, th there are some other talks about different companies that are uh, explaining how they implemented GraphQL or even implemented Federation. And I'll will provide the links in the show notes. Perfect. So the show notes are going to be awesome. Um, <laughs> lots of links provided by Arthur, so it's all uh, it's all based on his. Input. Um, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Arthur, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much uh, have for Have fun, everyone, right. and make wise choices in terms of the architecture. <laughs> okay. Always. Thank you. Bye bye. See you later. Bye bye.